We're going to resume in John chapter 19. This is the 99th message in John, so we're getting toward the end. But uh, if you're not familiar with the system around here, there should be a printed message. I think it's got a blue cover this week that you can pick up either now or later at both exits. There should be an outline in your bulletin that's a little more bare bones. The printed notes have the manuscript of the message along with um, verses and things I can't always cover because of sake of time. And all of the printed and audio messages of the last 23 years are on the church website that you can access there as well. So we're going to resume. Jesus has just yielded his spirit after crying out, it is finished. And uh, that's in verse 30. So Jesus has just died on the cross. And then we read in verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen and testified, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. A hen and a pig saw a sign that was announcing the title of the sermon at a church. The sermon was, what can we do to help the poor? And the hen suggested that they feed them bacon and eggs. And the pig thought about that a minute, and he said, there's one problem with your suggestion. He said, for you, that only requires a contribution. But for me, it requires total commitment. You know, I saw the photos a few months back, as you probably did, of the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded on the beach because they refused to renounce Christ. And I read stories about our brothers and sisters in Muslim countries where 
the extremist Muslims will come and put a sword to their throat and say, are you a Christian? And they know that if they answer yes, it's off with their head. And I wonder, what would I do? I mean, it's easy to sit here and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd I'd give my life for Jesus. But what would I do? I trust that the Lord would give special grace in that moment that I would not deny him and that I would be willing to lay down my life. But the question that should concern all of us is, how can I deepen my commitment to Christ now so that should I be faced with that ultimate situation, I would be true to him? Two minor characters in John's Gospel, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, give us a lesson in how to deepen our commitment to Christ. When I was in college many years ago, there was a commercial, maybe some of you are old enough to remember it. It was for Clairol hair coloring, and the tagline on the commercial was, only her hairdresser knows for sure. And the idea was, you know, her dyed hair was so realistic that only the guy that did the the dyeing job or the gal, they're the only ones who really know she dyes her hair and the rest of us don't know. Well, from that, we coined an expression uh, about certain Christians we knew who were very hesitant to let it be known that they were Christians. And we called them Clairol Christians. Because we said, only God knows for sure whether they're a Christian. They never make it known themselves, you know, openly. And up to this point, both Joseph and Nicodemus had been what we would have called then Clairol Christians. They had kept it to themselves that they were followers of Jesus. In verse 38, John says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And then he adds, but a secret one a clairol one, (laughs) for fear of the Jews. From the other Gospels, we learn that Joseph was a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, He had to gather up his courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He had not consented to their plan to crucify Jesus. We met Nicodemus back in John chapter 3 in the well-known passage about the new birth where he came to Jesus by night. He acknowledged that Jesus was a teacher sent from God because of his many miracles that Nicodemus had witnessed. And Jesus, I'm sure, caught Nicodemus up short, startled him when he said to him in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was, as Jesus put it, the teacher of Israel, but he did not know that all of his good works were worthless to get him into heaven. He kept the law of Moses. He tithed fastidiously. He kept all the cleanliness rituals. He kept all of their feasts. He did all of that, thinking that it would commend him to God. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, No, unless you are born from the Spirit of God, you aren't going to be there in heaven. And that's true for every one of you. 
I think that's the most persistent error of our day. Go out on the street, ask people, how will you get into heaven? And they will invariably say, well, you see, I'm a good person. I'm a good person, basically. I have my faults. But, uh, you know, God knows I'm a good person. And they're basing their eternal life on their own goodness. And they will be in for a rude shock someday because no good person goes to heaven based on their goodness. The only way in is being born of the Spirit of God. Now, we don't know how Nicodemus responded to that meeting. We do know that in John chapter 7, the Pharisees were very frustrated because they had sent out the temple guard to arrest Jesus, and they came back empty-handed. And the Pharisees, in frustration, scornfully ask in John 7.48, No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And at that point, Nicodemus weakly defended Jesus by saying in verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless he at first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And then his colleagues put him down by replying, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So both Joseph and Nicodemus probably were among those whom John refers to in chapter 12 and verses 42 and 43, when he says, Nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in Jesus, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And here's the reason. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. But now, after Jesus has been crucified, Nicodemus, and he joins Joseph in giving Jesus a proper burial. Joseph screws up his courage, goes to Pilate to ask for the body. Meanwhile, Nicodemus goes, spends a fair amount of money buying uh, probably 65 to 70 pounds, U.S. pounds, of myrrh, and aloes, and they would wrap the body with the linen strips and tuck these spices in there to offset the stench of the decomposing body or corpse. Uh, The two men took Jesus' body from the cross, prepared him for burial, and laid him in Joseph's new tomb, a personal tomb near uh, Golgotha, a cave basically hewn out of the rock, And it says no other bodies had yet been placed there. So you have this odd situation going on where the disciples who had been fully committed to Jesus while he was alive. In fact, Thomas had said, let's go up to Jerusalem and die with him. Um, Peter had said, Lord, I'll die with you before I would deny you. And yet at the crucifixion, they all turn tail and run and are scattered Maybe John is the only one who comes back to the cross. But yet Joseph and Nicodemus, who had been undercover uh, disciples during the time Jesus was alive, now that he is dead, they risk their positions on the Sanhedrin. They take this bold and open stand for Christ after his death. Now, there are a few commentators, I might add, who question whether they were truly born again or believed in Jesus because John never directly says so. 
but it seems to me that the fruit of their actions uh, reflects the root of their faith, that they truly were born again or they would not have boldly uh, come out for Christ at this point. And so you have to ask the question, why the change? Why, after Jesus has died, they easily could have said, like the two men on the Emmaus Road, Ha, ah, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But didn't work. You know, in other words, they could have said, Well, I guess Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's dead. And they could have maybe shrugged and said, Well, you know, rather than risk wrath from my fellow Pharisees, I... Certainly wouldn't have any uh, standing with them if I came out and buried him. Uh, I hope the disciples give him a decent burial and they could have just steered clear of the whole thing. But instead, they come out boldly for Christ. And you have to ask why. I think the answer lies in the way that John juxtaposes the text here. He puts the final scene of Jesus at the cross in verses 31 to 37 Uh, standing against the action of these two men in verses 38 to 42. And I believe that these men had watched Jesus die, and it deeply affected them. You know how it affected the thief on the cross, the one thief. He, at first, was mocking Jesus with his fellow thief, but as he watched Jesus die, it changed him. And he decided, this is no mere man. And he finally asked the Lord to be merciful to him when he comes into his kingdom. And I think that this looking on Christ crucified is what changed Joseph and Nicodemus, where now they come out boldly and make this commitment to Christ. And thanks to them, Jesus' body was not thrown on the ash heap with where the common criminals would be um, not even buried, but just burned. Instead, it was in the tomb. Now, of course, God could have raised Jesus from the ash heap three days later. Uh, He will raise all people, including those who have been blown up in airplanes and every other form of death. But we wouldn't have had the evidence of the empty tomb, which we're going to look at next week. Um, And so God used these two men's late but costly commitment. And the application for us is that looking on The crucified Christ deepens our commitment to him. Looking to Christ and him crucified. On my uh, trip away, I managed to read three books, and uh, one of them has to be in the top five books I've ever read. Just an outstanding book on the Christian life called Newton on the Christian Life. There was one copy out on the book table, I think, but it's about John Newton. The author, you know him as the author of Amazing Grace. And the, the theme of Newton's view of the Christian life was looking unto Christ. Looking unto Christ. He said, that's it. That's my main task every day is to look unto Jesus. And when you learn to do that, it transforms your life. And uh, that's kind of what that book is all about. But that's what we're looking at here is looking at Christ and him crucified for me deepens my commitment. So first of all, let's look at the crucified Christ. And we see that he died 
to provide a full salvation in fulfillment of prophecy. There are three things to note here. The first thing is Jesus died. And maybe you're saying, uh, duh, you know, come on, that's an obvious point. Of course, Jesus died. But that point has not always been affirmed in church history. Early in church history, perhaps even it had begun as John was writing, and he may be countering it, there was a group called the Docetists. comes from a Greek word, dokao, meaning to think or to seem. And they contended Jesus wasn't truly human. He only seemed to be human. It only looked like he was human, kind of like an apparition. But he was really God. They were affirming his deity, but denying his humanity. Uh, I just learned in preparation for this sermon that Muhammad gained his knowledge of Christianity through Docetic sources, through the Docetists. And so in the Quran, Surah 4.156, it says this, They did not kill him, that is Christ, neither did they crucify him, it only seemed to be so. Isn't that amazing? That false teaching that you might say, well, that's no big deal. It is a huge deal because it leads Muhammad astray into a false view of Jesus Christ. And now there are over a billion people. The city where we just were last Sunday is swarming with people who are devotees of Islam. Led astray by false teaching. And that same false teaching keeps resurfacing. I... um, went online to check, and there's a book called The Passover Plot by Hugh Schoenfield, and I thought, well, maybe it's been laid to rest, and I discovered on Amazon, special 40th anniversary edition out now. And Schoenfield's theory was Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned or kind of went into a semi-coma They laid him in the cool tomb. The cool temperature revived him. And voila, he appeared and said, everyone said, he is risen. But the fact is, if Jesus didn't die, then he didn't atone for our sins. And if Jesus didn't die, he was not raised from the dead. And the Apostle Paul says, if he is not raised from the dead... Not only are you not forgiven, your entire Christian faith is worthless. Worthless. And if Jesus didn't die, then you have to throw out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and all of the New Testament, because it is one uniform witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death atoning for the sins of his people, his resurrection affirming God's stamp of approval on him. That's the center of our hope. And so it's essential to affirm that Jesus died. Now, John establishes that fact in three ways. First, in verse 31, he reports that then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. It was a high Sabbath because it immediately followed Passover, which had happened the day before. 
And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 states that if anyone is condemned as a criminal and dies and they hang him on a tree, he is not to remain on the tree overnight because it would defile the land. John, as you know, is a master of irony. He likes tongue-in-cheek kind of satire. And you'll remember that when the Jews wanted to accuse Jesus, they didn't want to defile themselves by walking on the pavement where Pilate lived. So they had Pilate come out to them. And John is just full of irony there saying, here they are killing their Messiah and they don't want to defile themselves? Well, it's the same thing here. You see, oh, they go to Pilate and, and want send somebody to Pilate because they want these bodies taken off the cross so that they don't defile the land when they've just defiled the land by killing Jesus, the Messiah. That's the idea here. So Pilate gives the order to break these men's legs, and that would have resulted in swift death. All of us, I think, have had the painful experience of maybe in the night going somewhere and you whack your shin on something hard and it wakes you up right away. You just go, ah, you know, it is really painful. Well, can you imagine after these men have been flogged and their backs are ripped open, they're nailed to a cross and they hang there with their hands and feet nailed to the cross, gasping for breath And along come the soldiers with a mallet and smash them in the shins until their shins are shattered. I just can't imagine the pain. But what that did, they had to push up with their legs to get a breath. Otherwise, they would die of suffocation. And so as soon as your shins are broken, you no longer have the ability to push up your torso and gain gasp for breath. And so they would die very, very quickly. But the soldiers came. It says they smashed the legs of the two thieves. But then they come to Jesus and he's already dead. So they don't break his legs. Now, that's significant. The the soldiers would be under orders. Go break the prisoner's legs. But these men don't do it. They um, must have been absolutely certain Jesus was dead or they would have broken his legs. A second way that John shows Jesus was dead is he reports how one of the soldiers, and again, we don't know, but presumably he wanted to make sure he was dead, so he takes his spear and pokes it into his side. And out of the side come blood and water gushing out. Now, medical experts disagree on exactly what's going on medically there, but they all agree That shows he was dead before that happened. The blood and the serum tend to separate at death. Uh, Of course, if he wasn't dead, that would have done him in because this was not a minor wound. Um, It was a wound big enough that in chapter 20, Jesus invites Thomas and says, put your hand here into my side. So when you have a spear with a head on it and you stick it in someone and pull it out, it's going to leave a gaping wound in Jesus' side. And John's point is, he's dead. He's dead. And then John underscores it in verse 35 with his eyewitness testimony. He says, he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth 
so that you also may believe. And I believe in that verse, John is countering the Docetus. He's saying, look, I saw it, and this was no apparition. Jesus died, and I saw the blood and the water gush out of his own side. The third way John proves Jesus was dead is that both Joseph and Nicodemus prepared him for burial. And that would have involved taking the corpse off the cross. They would have washed him with water to clean him off and then begin the process of wrapping him and tucking all of these spices in with the wrappings. And we, we know for certain that if there was even a hint of breath or pulse, they would have stopped the process and said, he's still alive. But they did not. They buried him. And so we can be certain, first of all, that Jesus died and was buried. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that that's part of the gospel, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. The second thing to note, then, is that Jesus' death provided a full salvation. His death was unique among all human deaths because Jesus was unique. As fully God, his death could atone for human sins, for the sins of others. But as fully man, his death atoned for human sins, which it would not, they would not have had he not been man. And so on the cross, Jesus fully paid the debt for the sins of his people, as Matthew one twenty one predicted, uh, he shall save his people from their sins. Um, he proclaims in verse 30, just before he dies, it is finished. And in Greek, that's a single word that was often stamped on a bill of sale to say paid in full. Sometimes you get a, a receipt and the merchant will stamp paid in full on it. That's, it is finished. Jesus paid in full the penalty for the sins of all who believe in him. John also, though, I think, wants us to think about the significance of the blood and the water that gushed from Jesus' side as it relates to our salvation. He makes that point by saying that he reports this in verse 35 for a very specific reason, so that you might believe. So he's relating it to salvation, to faith in Christ for salvation. As you know, John is fond of symbolism. We've seen it all through the gospel. Light and darkness, death and life, all of those kinds of different symbols that John brings in. The problem is commentators differ on what does the blood and the water out of his side mean. Since the days of Chrysostom, who was an early church father, <clears throat> A uh, popular view is that water represents baptism, of course, water baptism, and that the blood represents the communion, the cup. Uh, the problem is, and most commentators reject that view because it just doesn't seem germane to the context here. It's more likely that the blood and the water point to the eternal life and the cleansing that we receive uh, from Jesus' death. J.C. Ryle, I think, is probably on track when he believed that John had in mind <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. That verse reads, In that day 
A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And the reason that Ryle thinks that verse is what John had in mind is it occurs in the Hebrew text five verses, with no chapter break back then, five verses before Zechariah 12.10, which John quotes in verse 37, uh, they will look on him whom they've pierced. And so the blood would refer then to Jesus' blood that cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. And the water would look at the eternal life. That was the picture of water back in chapter 4 when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well. Or the Holy Spirit who gives new life, John chapter 7. Jesus talks about rivers of living water flowing out of the believer. And so... um, the blood and water referring to salvation that cleanses us from all our sin, that gives us new life in Christ. There are several beloved well, uh, old hymns that well express this concept. William Cooper, who was a friend of John Newton's, wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Or Augustus Toplady wrote, Rock of Ages, Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flow be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Or then, Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Now, the important thing as we study this is that you don't just sit there passively and go, well, that's interesting, ho-hum. This should move your heart before God. The fact that Jesus, the sinless, eternal Son of God, came to this earth and took on human flesh, and he went there because he loved you, and he died on the cross for you. It should change your heart and motivate you to be fully committed to him. And that's why John says, I I write these things. I saw it and I'm writing it for a reason, so that you may believe, so that you may believe. And that belief transforms your heart. You can't be the same as you look on Christ crucified for you. Remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 where he says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then very personally, he adds, Who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what I'm talking about. One more thing to note before we move on from looking at Christ and him crucified is that Jesus' death and burial uniquely fulfilled prophecy. It must have been a horrifying thing to look on Christ crucified, especially if you were his friend, if you knew him and loved him. But John wants us to know this. God sovereignly ordained the cross. It wasn't that wicked men got the upper hand and God was on vacation or something. No, God ordained the cross, and we can take great comfort in knowing that these things happened because God foreordained our salvation. Uh, 
God, in his mysterious ways, uses evil men to put his son on the cross to provide salvation for all who believe. There's a mystery there I cannot explain. But notice, first of all, in verse 36, John says, These things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. John is probably referring here to three scriptures. In Exodus 12.46 and in Numbers 9.12, it says that the bones of the Passover lamb should not be broken. In the part of the world where we were last week, um, they cook lamb kebabs over open charcoal all over the city. That's all you can smell as you walk around are these lamb kebabs. And if you order them and you're looking for boneless meat, lots of luck. You bite into it, and they're full of bones and gristle. Same thing with the way they cook chicken. They just chop that baby up like a uh, dice it, you know, and cook it so when you eat chicken, they don't know the meaning of boneless chicken. It's got the bones in it. But when the Passover lamb was slain, you were not to break its bones. Um, and the other scripture was Psalm 34:20, where it refers to God protecting the righteous men so that his enemies would not break his bones. And uh, John sees that as a messianic prophecy. It's significant, I think, that these soldiers, they are under orders from Pilate, break the bones of the three men on the cross. Jesus is in the middle. They come to uh, prisoner number one, they smash his legs, he screams out in agony, and he's done. They go and skip over Jesus and go to prisoner number three and break his bones, and he's done. They come to the middle, last, and he's, he's dead already. And they disobey orders by not breaking his bones. Why did they do that? Well, the answer is in verse 36, to fulfill Scripture. God's ways are such that his word is never violated. It is always fulfilled. And hundreds of years before, it was ordained that Jesus would be our Passover lamb slain for us, and you don't break the bones of the Passover lamb. And so he is preserved. Um, So Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy. Uh, The second scripture that's fulfilled, the soldier comes along, And he is not under orders to thrust a spear into the side of the prisoners. Probably as a whim to think, I wonder if he's really dead. He just jabs him with this spear and blood and water gush out. And John makes it clear in verse 37 that this fulfilled Zechariah 12.10. They shall look on him whom they pierced. That prophecy will have a subsequent fulfillment at the return of Christ, according to Revelation 1.20, when all of Israel will look on him whom they pierced and mourn. But many prophecies in the Bible have multiple fulfillments, and it was fulfilled then. Also, uh, Isaiah 53.5 says that the suffering servant was pierced through for our transgressions. The third prophecy that Jesus' burial Uh, fulfilled, although John doesn't refer to it, but any reader of the Old Testament would immediately make the connection, is Isaiah 53, 9. 
it says there, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Normally, when a man was crucified, they would leave his body on the cross until the vultures and the the ravens picked it clean, and then the rest of the corpse would be thrown on Gehenna, the ash heap that was kind of a perpetual burning trash heap outside of Jerusalem, and his ashes would be burned there. Um, But God always accomplishes his purpose, and he had predicted that Jesus would have his grave assigned with wicked men, and yet at the same time be with a rich man in his death. How does that work? Well, he's crucified between the two criminals, and then a rich man comes along who, guess what, coincidentally has a tomb right by Golgotha, and they have to get Jesus buried hastily before the Sabbath, and so he is in a rich man's tomb. There's one writer who observes, Jesus was rich twice in his life. At his birth, when the wise men gave him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and at his death, when he's buried in a rich man's tomb. And so, looking at the crucified Christ, who fulfilled all of these prophecies, who died for our sins to provide a full salvation, will deepen our commitment to him. Every detail of his death and resurrection was planned by God, and he fulfilled it to a T. Now, let's briefly look before we close at the commitment then that results. And it's going to cost you three things. Commitment to Christ costs you rejection, religion, and riches. Salvation in Christ, in other words, is free, but at the same time, paradoxically, it's costly. Commitment to Christ, first of all, costs you rejection because by burying Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus would have incurred the wrath and rejection of the council of the Sanhedrin. Their career in Jewish religious affairs was done when they chose to give a decent burial to this despised, rejected Galilean. Commitment to Christ will cost you when you insist on Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. Let me explain. People don't mind if you admire Jesus as a great moral teacher. Oh, yes, yes, he had some good teachings. Golden rule, love others. Oh, yes, wonderful. Um, People don't mind if you say, Jesus is one way to God. He... He is the way of salvation for me, but maybe there's other ways of salvation for others too. And people go, yes, yes, let's be tolerant of all religions. Uh, But when you start saying, you know what? Jesus was crucified for sinners and there is no other way to God except to come to the cross of Christ as a guilty sinner and trust in his shed blood, abandoning all of your good works, all of your moralism is worthless. That's the only way, boy, at that point you're going to get rejection. You're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're this, you're that, you know. Christ in him crucified costs rejection. Commitment to Christ costs you also your religion. The Jewish religious leaders 
ironically, would not set foot in Pilate's dwelling so they wouldn't defile themselves for the Passover. And yet here, Joseph goes into Pilate's dwelling to ask for the body of Jesus. And so he defiled himself. Furthermore, the Jews would never touch a dead body and be defiled, especially during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And yet Joseph and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus down from the cross, thereby defiling themselves, wash the blood off, defiling themselves further, and wrap him and prepare him for burial. And so they lost their religion, but they gained Christ. Now by religion, I'm talking about external stuff. There are people that are religious Oh, they go through all the rituals. They go to Mass regularly. They cross themselves. They uh, say their Hail Marys. They, you know, do light candles. And they do all the religious stuff. But their hearts are far from God, who looks on the heart. And Jesus encountered that in his day with the Pharisees. He said, you guys do all the stuff. You tithe and you do this and you keep the rituals and you keep yourself ceremonially clean. But your hearts aren't right with God. And to come to Jesus, you got to get rid of your religion. The outward, and you got to begin to deal with God on the heart level. Start judging your sin on the thought level. And coming to Christ and having a relationship with Him. And having reality with Him every day, not just on Sunday or at religious occasions. Commitment to Christ will cost you rejection, it'll cost you your religion, and then finally it costs you your riches. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were both pretty well-off men, and to own your own personal tomb in Jerusalem was no doubt an expensive proposition. That was prime real estate, to have a private tomb. And he gives it up to Jesus. And remember, he wasn't expecting the tomb will be empty so I can use it later. He thought that Jesus would be in there perpetually. And Nicodemus goes and he buys all of these spices, which were very expensive to bury Jesus. And then I presume both men became a part of the early church. And you remember the story in Acts where all of these pilgrims had come to Jerusalem and got saved on the day of Pentecost and They needed support, and so the wealthy among the church were selling their properties and laying the money at the apostles' feet so that they could support these pilgrims while they were there. And so very likely, Joseph and Nicodemus lost some property. But they lost earthly riches, and they gained eternal treasures in heaven, didn't they? Jesus made this profound statement, Matthew 16, 25, and 26. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, that's not to say that there aren't temporal benefits when you come to Christ. There are. On one occasion, Peter said to Jesus in Mark 10, 28, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And the implicit 
thing he was asking was, what's in it for us? And Jesus knew that, and he responded as follows. He said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there may be persecutions, but you gain a worldwide family is the point. And it's such a joy to travel overseas and meet people from a totally different culture and different background, and they know Jesus, and instantly you go, that's my brother in Christ. It's just a wonderful thing. So to deepen your commitment to Christ, meditate often on his death on your behalf. Isaac Watts put it well, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of any who have not seen the glory of Jesus to see Christ and him crucified on behalf of sinners, him resurrected and now glorified, coming again in power and glory soon, and that they would repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. And I pray, Lord, that as your children, we get caught up with all the stuff in this world, paying bills and going to work and getting kids to school and just doing everything. And I pray that we would be able to daily set time aside and just focus on Christ crucified for me, crucified for each one who has believed in him, that our commitment to you would deepen. And I ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you're a visitor with us, 